Hello, and welcome to today's seminar on entrepreneurs and the COVID-19 global reset in South Asia. I'm Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mittalam Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the Institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. As part of this engagement, the Institute is running a series this spring and summer on a number of topics related to COVID-19. We're so glad you joined us today, and please consider joining us next Friday, June 12th, when we'll be hosting an event at the same time on the labor of fashion, the global COVID-19 crisis, and the politics of resistance in Bangladesh. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's panel, Dr. Tarin Khanna. Tarin Khanna is the Jorge Paulo Lehman Professor at Harvard, where he's taught for 25 years, focusing on the role of entrepreneurs across developing countries. He's the first director of Harvard's Mittal Institute, a university-wide endeavor that brings together scientists and humanists with students and professors from professional schools for scholarship related to the two billion people of South Asia. Thank you for being with us today, Tarn. Thank you, Chelsea, for the introduction to the Institute and the generous comments. It's my privilege to host this panel with two really eminent entrepreneurs and social activists, if I may call them that, in their own countries, in Bangladesh and Pakistan and more importantly, people that I've come to call good friends, for which I'm very grateful. My task here is to introduce them, and then I will make some framing comments, and each of the panelists will spend about 10 minutes providing their own perspective on entrepreneurship as it's playing a role or failing to play a role, as the case might be, in the midst of this pretty devastating health and financial and economic crisis that's spreading around the world and the region. So first, let me start with my own perspective on this and then go to each of uh, Rajib and Osman. Rajib Samdani is uh, a seasoned entrepreneur in Bangladesh, head of a very diversified group, Golden Harvest, that has interest in a range of different enterprises. He's also with his wife, Nadia, the founder of the Taka Art event, which happens every couple of years, which has really become quite a destination on the arts calendar globally. And I had the privilege of attending a couple of years ago. Osman Wahid is a graduate of Harvard College, one of our own, and is in Lahore and runs Pakistan's pharmaceutical company, Feroz Sons Laboratories. Osman is uh, basically an entrepreneur and uh, lately has decided to our immense delight to sponsor, fund, and organize the Lahore Biennale, which I have not had the pleasure of visiting, but it's really quite nice to see art springing up in different places. So, you know, we are very fortunate to have them both with us because they're entrepreneurs in the sense of creating viable, financially sustainable enterprises that are doing good things in their parts of the world, generating employment, and therefore have a ringside view on the crisis. And Osman in particular also has a health-centric view with his pharmaceutical company. But equally important to me, they're entrepreneurs in the broader sense of the term, in which I like to think of it, a big tent view of entrepreneurship, which is essentially just creativity and problem solving. And uh, goodness knows the one thing we need in the developing countries in particular, with uh, institutional inadequacies of all sorts, we need creativity in spades. And that's been my own passion, so to speak, in my home country of India, but also in developing countries around the world. So it's really a privilege and a pleasure to be with my two, two colleagues, friends and panelists. You know, one thing I would say is that when I took over this role as creating the Mittal Institute about 10 years ago, one of the very first things I did was start a course in Harvard's dental education curriculum, which is sort of our core curriculum. It goes through many iterations as we struggle to find the right tone and framing for it. But it's the, the part of the curriculum that every Harvard undergraduate has to engage with in some way. And I began teaching a course on creativity in South Asia, primarily as a means to have a touch point for the Institute with Harvard College, which is the beating heart of the university in some sense. 
And that quickly mushroomed into a course on entrepreneurship for creativity across the developing world. Because even though we were teaching a course that was centered on Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan, so to speak, which is very unusual in the college 10 years ago, and even unusual today for that matter, I, we quickly found that within a couple of years, the room was full of Brazilians and Ecuadorians and uh, Senegalese and South Africans and so on. And it really spoke to all of us, saying that at a certain level of abstraction, the problems are similar across the developing country. So that course has become a staple. It's become a very popular course at Harvard. It attracts undergrads and graduate students from all over the university, and we do it every year, and it's really a privilege. And a number of people now do it with me. So we have a medical doctor, an architect, a theater personality, and a computer scientist co-teaching with me. So you can see that it's uh, incredibly, it's like, I think of it as a jazz improvisation in some sense, in real time, in the classroom. It's not easy to pull off, but when you're having fun, uh, it's not that bad. The second thing that happened is that that course then got an online version. I'm recounting this primarily to make a point that even in you know, remote, if you will, education institutions, I mean remote physically from, from South Asia in this case, and remote in the sense of being traditionally intellectual citadels, there's an increasing recognition among the rank and file faculty, but more importantly, the faculty among the students, that this sort of synthetic scholarship and mixing it up with the problems and immersing yourself in the milieu is the way to go. Right. Or is a way to go, not the only way to go for education, but is a way to go. And that course has got an online version, which is one of these so-called MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that it's now Harvard's across our 200, 300 MOOCs. It's the second most widely subscribed MOOC across any field. So we've got half a million people doing it now across 200 countries. And it's just spiraling in a viral fashion. And I think that speaks to the importance of the theme that the reason you see so much connection to it is that people embrace the idea of individual agency in problem solving, taking responsibility for problems. And I think what you'll see in the comments, uh, Rajiv and Osman, shortly is that both these individuals exemplify that attitude. Of course, there are many failures. Problems here are quite intractable. In fact, the title of the uh, Genet course has uh, creative solutions to intractable problems in some ways. And uh, I think the interactability is to be embraced as a challenge as opposed to anything else. Let me say two words on COVID in India, because I'm kind of more keen to hear about uh, Rajiv and Osman also. I have multiple lenses through which to view the crisis, primarily as an academic and educator, of course. And I've been giving these webinars to all the uh, companies whose boards I'm on and nonprofits, just summarizing how I see COVID. And it's been really an education for me to put my arms around everything that's going on in the world. The second lens is as an uh, entrepreneur in India, starting many companies and watching them go through different phases of exuberance and disaster in the course of the last two, three months. And the third is as a member of different government commissions in India that necessarily have had to get involved in this. So what we see in India is the standard developing country struggle, right? Which is the attempt to balance two very different objective functions that in the long run are correlated which is health and economic outcome, but in the short run cut in different directions in the sense that to preserve health, we have to quote unquote flatten the curve, protect the healthcare infrastructure to some extent. And so we've imposed big lockdowns in all these countries, but that comes at the cost of immediate livelihoods, particularly for the vast numbers of people in all our countries that are quite disenfranchised, economically and socially disenfranchised. So how do you balance that? Uh, India is emerging from one of the most severe lockdowns it's not clear that the curve has been flattened. The numbers of affected people seem low on a per capita basis. Uh, it's not clear to me whether that's because of testing infrastructure purely or it's because of some inbuilt immunity. We don't know. The science is just not very clear on it. And I would just report that there's a continued struggle and 
Unfortunately and sadly, the lower sections of society, and I've been writing a lot about the migrant populations that are stranded in different parts of India, have had to bear the brunt of this. And that I'm sure is going to be a trend across all the South Asian countries. And I'm eager to hear what colleagues in Bangladesh and Pakistan have been doing about that. I would say that my my colleagues in the corporate world in, in India have, I would say, stepped up quite handsomely to do things about this. Whether in the aggregate that's enough to make a difference, that's highly debatable. But they, at least there is the attitude to, to do more. Stimulus spending, both fiscal and monetary stimulus, is happening in India. The fiscal straitjacket is pretty tight in most developing countries, and India is no exception. The only sort of ambient good news, I suppose, across the world is that the world is at an aggregate level awash in liquidity. So global interest rates are really quite low. Therefore, the costs of taking on what would normally be utterly unsustainable debts are only moderately unsustainable in the long run, I would say just to put a slightly less negative and pejorative spin on it. The one very bright light that I see, I've been very involved with Gavi, which is the World Vaccine Alliance. Seth Berkeley is a colleague I met at the World Economic Forum many years ago, and I'd started working on some material from Gavi even before the crisis, so it was fortuitous, and then I decided to, to do a deep dive into it. But through that, I've become immersed in the scientific community, and I think there's a lot of, if you will, entrepreneurship within the science community in a very, very refreshing way. And I mean that globally. I certainly see that in India and I see it globally. The uh, protectionist barriers and the xenophobia and the nationalism that you see in many countries is absolutely absent in science so far. I'm sure there will be, uh, there's already some noise of chest thumping and saying our vaccines are for ourselves and so on and so forth. I'm sure Sman will comment on this. But that said, there are enough number of well-meaning people and, and institutions working to ensure that whenever there's a vaccine, that there will be some measure of equitable distribution. It's going to be imperfect, but I think there are people working on it. I don't know as much about the cure side of things. I know there's some antivirals that are showing promise, and uh, I have some sense about the tests, but not as good as some of our panelists, so I won't comment on it. So in summary, I mean, lots of distress, lots of action from the government, lots of action from the entrepreneurial community also, both in India, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and across the world, a significant revitalization of science. So with that positive comment about science, let me stop and hand over to Rajiv Samdani first. Thank you so much and welcome to this webinar. Rajiv, over to you. Thank you, Tarun. Thank you for having me. I'll just also, to start with, I'll give a little bit of background about Bangladesh, that what has been happening in last 10 years and where we stand. So Bangladesh is a young country and we are a hardworking nation. And Bangladesh is the fastest growing country in South Asia. And we have been growing over 6% from year on year for last one decade. And our last year growth rate was 8%, which is the highest in Asia. So I think that today when the entire world is fighting this pandemic, where we stand today, Bangladesh, we are in a much better position with our infrastructure and everything to fight this battle, probably where we were 12, 13 years back. Just to give you an example that in 2009, only 46% of Bangladesh's population were under the coverage of electricity. Today, it's more than 93%. Even for internet availability or internet access in 2009, only 3.1% of the population had access to internet. Today, it's more than 65%. Our literacy rate in 2007 from 46, it has grown up to now 72.89%. And every year, half a million graduates are coming out of different universities. So Bangladesh, we have a young population and we have a educated workforce. And as a nation, 
We are also a strong nation because Bangladesh, as you know, has been hit by many different natural disasters, cyclone, floods, and all these things have also made us strong. And it is the people of Bangladesh, along with government, private sector, civil society, creative minds, people of Bangladesh always together, work together hand in hand, and we have came out of all these difficult situations. So in case of current, this uh, pandemic we are in, that is something similar in case of Bangladesh government, private sector, everyone is working together. As you mentioned about India, our government have also provided several stimulus packages starting from root level to different industries. And other than this, government has also reached out to 60 million people directly, supported them. And also government has launched different e-portals, mainly targeting agriculture, healthcare, food supply chain, and education. And along with government, actually the private sector is also working that, you know, see, I am also a businessman. When I am also going through a challenging time with my businesses, but I'm not only thinking how I am going to survive or my company is going to survive. But for me, what is very important that how I will survive at the same time how I'm also going to support my community because this is how the Bangladeshis are. And this country has given us so much. This is our time to give back to our country. So this is the beauty about Bangladesh that, you know, public, private sector, everyone sort of working together. And in Bangladesh, one of the best blessings that we have we are fortunate to have organizations like BRAC who are actually working at the front line. There are many NGOs and organizations like BRAC who are actually working with the private sector and government together during these difficult times. And uh, just to give an example that last month, our ICT division of Bangladesh has also launched a crowdfunding app. Through that, actually, any individual can support an organization like RAC or other foundations who are mainly working at the front line. There are a lot of initiatives from private sector. People are building isolation centers, hospitals. One of this uh, foundation, uh, tech foundation, SPK foundation, has launched an app called WEN, mainly focusing on women, supporting women around Bangladesh during these difficult times. Even yesterday, Bangladesh has launched the Corona Tracer in partnership ICT division, our health ministry, and one of the leading private e-commerce company called Shahoj. They have collaborated together and they have launched it. So there are many thousands of examples like this where private sector and public, they're working together. And from my company, we are also working on a project like this. So I'll give you an example of that. So Golden Harvest, as you mentioned, that we are quite diversified company. We operate in different sectors, but considering the current situation and where we are entering a new world and unknown world. So we are actually focusing on few specific areas of our businesses that are our processed food business, our commodity business, our supply chain and logistics business, and our information and technology business. So I'll give you an example of our IT company where actually we are doing a collaboration 
with government. So if I train you, then you'll understand. So we have a business process outsourcing and software development company where we employ about 1500 people. And we work with very specialized handwritten document, all archival data, we digitize them. We have our clients all over the world. So when actually, and before the lockdown, we currently have 1500 people. We were supposed to recruit 3000 people. And of course the lockdown happened and we had to shut down our operation. So when actually we shut down our operation, uh, most of our colleagues, our employees, actually they went outside Dhaka and they are now all over in different parts of Bangladesh. But thanks to our infrastructure, electricity and internet available all over Bangladesh. So within only 10 days time, we were able to come back to our production. So now our almost 1500 people sitting in different corners of Bangladesh running our company on a virtual platform, but business is running as usual. We are receiving our export proceeds, so it is uh, as usual. So what I said that, you know, just before the lockdown, we were in the process of recruiting 3,000 people. So that actually became challenging and the kind of work we do that requires specialized training in a room. But considering this current situation where maintaining physical distance is a challenge, it is impossible to train this sort of workforce. So we have now invested in a software mainly using uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And through this, actually, we will be able to train up people from all over Bangladesh. So for this specific project, we have partnered with CRI, which is the country's leading think tank. They have come forward to support us in this project. And we also have education ministry and ICT ministry they are also working with us in this project and in this pilot project we are going to not only train 3,000 people we are now going to train 20,000 people and out of that 20,000 5,000 people will be recruited by our company and 15,000 people will be able to work freelance for companies outside or Bangladesh private sector and government sector is also going through digitization and our government has also announced that they're going to introduce blockchain technology by 2030. So there will be a lot of requirement for this digitization work. So this is one thing we are working together because Bangladesh is going to also face some challenges. As you know that Bangladesh is the leading garments uh, exporter. Our garments export earning is about 36 billion annually and Bangladesh garments is based on the fast fashion. So the fast fashion industry is quite badly affected uh, all over the world. So Bangladesh is going to have a bad impact to an extent because of this. Though our Bangladeshi entrepreneurs are creative, they're already exporting PPE, they're exporting gloves, they're exporting masks. So what you also mentioned, Tarun, about the remittance. So actually our second earning is about $15 billion that comes from our Bangladeshi brothers and sisters who are living abroad. Thousands and thousands of these people are jobless. They're coming back to Bangladesh. They're going to be another deficit. So that is why we are working on this project. We think we have the proper IT infrastructure, we have educated workforce, and I think BPO is one of the sector that we want to focus moving forward, and that sector can also help us to contribute toward the deficit that country is going to happen. So that is something, you know, we have been working with government, with CRI, and as I said that, you know, this is just an example that we are doing. There are several other examples like this where private sector is working with the government and working together. Thank you. Thank you, Rajiv. Usman. Uh, thank you, Tarun. I'd like to start by, you know, first of all, expressing my condolences for the, the losses of lives that have taken place in the pandemic. And it's, it's been uh, shockingly very sad numbers. 
happening globally, of course, but our condolences to all the families who have experienced the loss and also with the recent tragedies that took place with Mr. Floyd and Mr. Aubrey. So the world is going through a difficult time. It's uh, similar in Pakistan also with the pandemic initially, and I think still even today, the uh, mortality rates are relatively low, but the number of cases in Pakistan are now on a steep upward vertical. So even though we began with a fairly severe, for in a South Asian context, you know, we're very chaotic people and we're very, very passionate. We, we handled this pandemic in a way like we handled our sports, in, like we play cricket. And there's also a convergence in leadership between sports and politics these days. So that, that shows a little bit. So in the beginning, while we had a, a fairly effective lockdown, I think very quickly, just before Eid, that was reversed. And although this idea of a smart lockdown is something that some provincial governments tried, Sindh was very effective at it. And in Punjab, in fact, Harvard was part of this effort. The Kennedy School faculty was helping design a data management system, a response system that would, in real time, collect data and then you know, help the government decide which areas to lock down and which to not. Unfortunately, the you know, the political side of things always has a kind of a tendency to go through a knee-jerk reaction. And in the end, I think we um, were not able to reach the optimal goal of having an easing of the lockdown that would have been systematic and led to a sort of a revival of the economy. So as it stands today, we have about 90,000 confirmed cases in, in Pakistan. They've you know, ramped up very rapidly. And mortality, although it's still as a percentage lower, it's doubled in the last week. So it, it, was, it touched 1,000 about a week, 10 days ago, now it's very close to 2,000. So we have a real challenge before us. And while we don't have the long tradition of institutionalized NGO work that Bangladesh very admirably has, you've seen a lot of positives also. So there are departments within the government that have really stepped up, that some of the province actually did a phenomenal job in protecting their people. And in the private sector, a lot of companies, the large-scale textile sector, for example, very quickly switched over to producing PPEs, they collaborated with the private sector and pharmaceuticals. So together we donated PPE equipment in the tens of thousands to public sector hospitals across the country to protect frontline healthcare workers. As a result, we were not in the PPE export business, but it's becoming a significant opportunity for Pakistan that, that we've just begun to exploit. And similarly for the pharma industry, it began with hand sanitizers and more sophisticated products like antivirals. So in our case, we, we signed up with Gilead Sciences in the US to produce this antiviral called Remdesivir, which is so far the only antiviral that's been approved in various countries for treatment. It's not a silver bullet, it's not a cure, but it does seem to help in uh, reducing the severity of disease and uh, reduces hospital stays by about 30 to 40% in the most advanced cases and in more moderate cases in about 60%. It reduces the hospital stay by about 60%. So hopefully with the way progress is taking place and the, and the breathtaking speed at which the healthcare industry is responding to this challenge, soon you'll see uh, combinations of therapeutics that come together and are more effective in fighting the virus. And of course, you're intimately connected with Gabi, so you know the race to vaccine development. Where over 90 candidates across the globe and quite a couple of them at least are now in human testing phases. So hopefully there is positivity ahead. Also, what's happened amongst all this chaos is that the nature of healthcare delivery, I think, in some ways might actually improve. Uh, so I'll just give you a couple of examples. One area is in medical education. Traditionally, how the medical community used to learn was to travel around the world, spend or waste a lot of resources attending these conferences to keep themselves updated with the latest in medical advancement. What's happened with the lockdown is that this transfer of knowledge has shifted online. And it's been far more efficient as a result than what the physical manifestation previously was. There's a lot less wasted of time. You don't have this issue of visa access. So now it's much more democratic. Any physician that's interested in a subject can log on. So just to give you an example, we ran a series of these CME symposia with the start of the COVID-19 crisis. 
There are connected frontline uh, physicians, cardiologists, for example, who are doing angioplasty procedures in Brooklyn, New York, have a live talk with all the interventional cardiologists in Pakistan. And compared to a normal healthcare conference where you would have an attendance of 50 to 60 or maybe 150 people in a room, that would be considered good. We had, you know, well over a thousand people online, very engaged, far more interesting Q&A sessions than you would have in actual conferences. So you, you see this and the application can extend beyond, of course, medicine. So something that we at the Middle Institute, for example, have been talking about for some years is bringing all these minds together from across South Asia. I mean, there's so much learning within the region that we can have from each other. We can learn so much from Bangladesh and so much from India and vice versa. You know, the public health officials in, in these countries have so much knowledge and information to share that it has not been possible because of the uh, political boundaries, but in the virtual space, anything is possible. So I think that's been one really wonderful outcome of the way medical education has changed. We're also now trying very quickly to help physicians transition into digital consultations. And this didn't really take off before COVID, but now with COVID, a lot of companies are working to make the consultation very experiential, help the patients transfer money through either mobile wallets or even cash on delivery mechanisms where somebody on a motorbike comes and takes the money, deposits in the doctor's account, and the patient is able to have his medical consultation despite all the challenges around lockdown. And of course, if you've been to a South Asian clinic, you know how chaotic that experience is and you have to end up waiting. A 9 p.m. appointment sometimes comes through only at 1 a.m. and you're sitting in this crowded waiting room all this time. Now you can sit at home, watch TV while your doctor you know, takes his time to get around to your appointment. So there are positives that have come out. And uh, I think as we go forward, we'll see the health sector in particular, but other sectors also evolve in a way that'll reduce efficiencies and create new opportunities as well. Thank you, Usman. And thank you, Rajiv, again. So we've got a lively set of questions coming in from our audience. But before we do that, let me pose a couple of questions. I mean, there were two things that struck me as being present either explicitly or implicitly in all three sets of comments, the ones that I made to frame things and then uh, that each of you did. One was about the nature of interaction of private entrepreneurs with the government. Not so much the individual, I think the individual collaborations we see in every country, I think that's fair to say, because I have fundamental belief that most human beings are decent and want to do good things and will look out for small opportunities to do them. I'm sort of more interested in the fabric of collaboration. Is there any comment that either of you would like to make about, I mean, let me give you an example of what I mean by the fabric of collaboration. Is it the case that private sector finds a role in articulating and influencing policy in an explicit or implicit way with the government? Is that feedback mechanism across societal strata, so to speak, getting better in any sense? And has COVID changed that dynamic going forward? So that's, that's, that's one question. Yeah, so one thing I can just add over here, the way actually our Bangladesh government is, they always welcome any, because private sectors are mainly coming up with ideas. It's not that like, you know, government is giving an idea to the private sector and ask, them to implement this. So what is happening, they're welcoming private sector to come up with an idea. And that is where actually they're being the facilitator, they're actually supporting these sort of projects. So in our case, also, as I said, that, you know, we are also working with a think tank, and we have these government agencies, because if we, as a private company, we want to do something in this mass scale, that will be extremely challenging for us. But they are the ones who are actually supporting this project, opening the doors for 
us. So this is how actually from Bangladesh perspective, this is how our government has always been working, not only during this COVID situation, even, you know, our Dhaka summit, that is also a, a partnership we do in partnership with Bangladesh government. So this is something quite common here. It is not something new that, you know, we have started because of this COVID situation. So at least that is how we have been working here. So that DNA of collaboration is well established in Bangladesh, perhaps as a result of past crises that Bangladesh has had to endure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Usman, any comment? On yeah, that? I think it's in the early stages in Pakistan, for sure. But what we've seen in this crisis is that the government has been much more proactive in reaching out, not just to private sector, but to academia as well. So there's mm-hmm. been a lot of very fast policy research projects that have tried to inform government. I mentioned that there have been some problems in policy becoming practice, but it's still there that at least that effort has begun. And in, in some areas, it's worked very well. Um, and going forward, I think it's created these pathways of communication that should hopefully strengthen over time. I know in in my own case, working within the Indian government uh, infrastructure, which as you can imagine is quite complex, being a large country and a noisy democracy, what I've often found is sometimes you can get traction from the central government. And when you can't get that, federalism's in Dabad, right? I mean, we can use the federal structure to find partners. Some state is more progressive in some dimension than the others. And so again, wearing my creative entrepreneur hat, you just kind of look for the right constellation, trigger that experiment, and then hope that it catches on. And you're absolutely right. Like any other creative venture, most things don't really take off. But if you try it in a few few places, and I will say that the Mithal Institute in a very small way has triggered a number of these initiatives across the states in, in, in India. And, you know, our track record is not bad. Something or the other clicks, some foundation picks it up, some civil society entity, some bureaucrat in a responsible position in a state and so on. So I would report that the experimentation on private-public partnership itself on or on public-private partnering is well-advanced. And that, to me, is a really good sign in many ways. It's a meta level of experimentation. It's an area where I think it would be fruitful going to Osman's other point and coming to my second question. And this idea of barriers between the South Asian countries for reasons of historical tensions that have prevented in particular, well-intentioned people from both India and Pakistan who want to get together to collaborate on things from getting together physically. We would have to get together in Dubai or in Singapore or Guangzhou or something or, or Colombo. But now we can get together virtually much more frequently, and you know, which we could do earlier also, but I think people are more predisposed to it now. It doesn't seem that unusual. So I hope we can capitalize on that in some way. Osman, your point about rethinking education, of course, is something that we are experiencing all over the world. All universities are forced to grapple with this pivot in some ways. So whether it's professional education, you know, recertifications, et cetera, of the persuasion that you were offering, or it's uh, Harvard College here in my own immediate backyard, it really is a new moment, an exciting new moment in some ways. Sobering also, but exciting also. Yeah, actually about this, it is an exciting moment in education, you know. At the moment, all of us are going through a crisis that we're trying to adapt to a situation and trying to find a technology-based solution that gives a good enough experience for students to be satisfied. But once we go beyond this inward-looking sort of crisis management phase, we should really be extremely willing to experiment with what opportunities this offers us. So sitting in Lahore, if I can be connected to you in Cambridge, let's see how universities can do that and start mm-hmm. a series of really interesting conversations that can take on a, you know, a life of their own and actually make this platform so much more exciting than initially you would think coming into it. 
I'll give you one small example, which is, you know, I've been teaching both at Harvard College for the last decade and last quarter century at Harvard Business School. And at, at HBS, our discussion is all, you know, in a very regimented manner. It's a case study discussion in a classroom of, you know, between 50 and 120 people, amphitheater, Socratic style, fairly limited experimentation in some sense, right? Experimentation about content, yes, but not about format. And uh, this year I proposed before COVID, to give me a little bit of credit, that this is an antiquarian method. We should be opening it up to the whole world. Technology is already there. And I, after much struggle, I got an approval to teach a class, which was two thirds to Harvard students, to MBA students, but one third opened to the rest of the world. In other words, in a live studio, where two thirds of the students would be, for purposes of treating equally with outside students, would also be on screen in a theater that we've created. But 20, 30 people, 40 people would be from the developing countries of the world and they would be on, on the screen also. And I said, okay, if you HBS guys are so good, why don't you mix it up with the best of the world and see if you can stack up. And I've run that experiment before in Harvard College also. And even the college kids are handily outperformed on assignments by kids from Kazakhstan and Belarus and Burundi. So I think it's a very sobering and important lesson for all of us, that you are where you are as a result, of course, of some work, but also by the grace of God and by a lot of largesse that has been delivered to all of us by society and our personal families, and not to forget that talent is everywhere and it deserves a chance in some ways. There are a set of questions about BPOs and what you think is the future of the BPO industry in Bangladesh. And one person says, why is Bangladesh behind in the BPO industry? The reason actually probably in case of BPO industry, we are a little bit of behind because our IT infrastructure was only built in last 10 years. As I said previously, that in 2009, only 3.1% of the population had access to internet. Today, it's over 65%. So we actually didn't have the infrastructure before. So if you talk about our IT infrastructure, it was just because India, I think this industry started in 80s, whereas actually we just started in last 10 years. But Bangladesh, actually, I think we will be able to develop very fast. But the main challenge, as I said, that you know we actually never had this infrastructure before. Now we have the infrastructure, we have the educated people, and this is, I think, way forward in one area Bangladesh is going to do amazingly well. Osman, do you, do you have a comment on this BPO industry in Pakistan? Well, the BPO industry in Pakistan, you know, is doing very well. The current circumstances are IT infrastructure has been fairly decent. I think it was about maybe the last 15 years or so that it enjoys a complete tax holiday. So it's, it's, it's you know, invited a lot of investment. It's nowhere near the scale that, for example, India's outsourcing industry is at. And we've suffered a little bit in getting international contracts because of the perception problem that Pakistan has had throughout, much less so now, thankfully. So it is experiencing a kind of a renaissance. Another question that comes up is the specific version in which the audience is posing the question is about cold chain. And Rajiv, again, directed to you explicitly, but more generally. The explicit question is, Golden Harvest had uh, spoken about investing in cold chain in the past, and you just mentioned your uh, food processing industry and so on. So could you comment on that? And then, Usman, the generalized version of that question, I think, is, are there significant public or private infrastructure limitations that you see private enterprise stepping up to do something within uh, in Pakistan? as well. So basically, uh, this is something we have announced last year, and we have a joint venture agreement with IFC. And IFC and us, actually together, we are building country's first ever whole chain network. 
so that is actually under process hopefully inshallah this project will go live sometime next year and once actually this project goes live this will be country's first ever temperature controlled logistics system so it will be a revolution for a country like us because in case of like horticulture sector we also waste a lot of products in few cases our post harvest loss also goes up to as high as 47% and ifc has introduced cold chain in india in china and many other countries they are also investing in pakistan so that is the similar way we have doing so right now actually we are at the construction phase hopefully inshallah next year because we were supposed to go live end of this year but due to this pandemic like things got a bit delayed so hopefully inshallah next year this project will go live so in a in a more generalized way i think what this covid-19 pandemic has showed us that this view of we had of the world that this we live in a global village everything's interconnected you order one thing one day in one part of the world you get it the next all of that has been challenged and it's exposed these weaknesses in parts of the world in our case it's been insecurity in terms of access to vaccine production for example there's been so many disruptions that it's really brought home the point that despite everybody wanting to live in one global village we have to be prepared for situations like this one where it's not going to be the case even in uh, you know in covid-19 when a vaccine is developed a year down the road one of the challenges that bill and melinda gates foundation and organizations like cepi have identified is that there's a real shortage of pill finished capacity for vaccines around the world so what you might see is this a new form of inequity where some countries will have immediate access to vaccination and others will have zero access to vaccination and one of the things that you know we're trying to do in pakistan and the government has been very supportive is to kick start these industries and invest very heavily in them where for example ramping up our production facility in a way that it can very quickly move to vaccine production in 12 months or 14 months down the road and you can have then a series of geographically distributed producers around the planet and this is something that the WHO also stated as a goal as part of this equitable access to therapeutics and vaccines that i think you know is important so it's not just the basic information infrastructure but also these key industries that are missing and that in the case of disruption will really deny access to very basic human requirements unless these inequities are addressed you said this is a new form of inequity that will emerge with some countries having access to vaccines but this is the oldest form of inequity i mean with yellow fever 20 30 years ago yellow fever vaccine was available around the world and most of us in the developing world had no access to it and a lot of deaths occurring so i think this is a quite old problem exacerbation of pre-existing disparities in times of crisis manifestation of a very old problem right yeah new manifestation absolutely absolutely but is it since you're uh, you know in this pharma world can you report whether you're pessimistic or optimistic or on some sliding scale as to whether you know we're in a fractured world really you know so many different senses and it's so difficult to have conversations across pre-existing poles of polarized segments yet you have sepi and gavi and bmgf and what have you trying to run these international collaborations and you have president trump saying america first and the chinese saying chinese first or some variation on it from your vantage point in the middle of pharma industry how optimistic are you about getting if not equitable then something approximating equitable access you know in a sense the pandemic has really brought simultaneously brought out the the best and the worst in us and it's it's a battle now between the best and the worst in us that that's playing out globally so i move from being cautiously pessimistic to <laughs> cautiously optimistic but it is actually organizations like sepi and and bmgf that give me this hope that regardless of what global politics looks like or even regional politics in our case which is sometimes far more of a challenge than the broader planet <laughs> but still these rays of hope that i that i see i mean there are collaborations that take place 
in the COVID-19 therapeutic landscape, for example, this licensing that is now addressing 127 developing countries with manufacturers in India and Pakistan working together. That's a great example of, despite politics, some parts of our society coming together and looking to solve these intractable problems. Very, 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 very interesting. I mean, one of the opening comments I made, to me, the, the two big silver linings of this crisis have been triggering of a much overdue revolution in education and the realization that despite the political challenges, collaboration in the scientific community is alive and well. And that you really see come through in both these, both these situations. What role do you see realistically? Is the government of Pakistan in any position, both in terms of financial capacity, but then also in terms of, you know, mental capacity, so to speak, organizational capacity to do the sorts of things that one might hope for? So, you know, we have a couple of challenges that have come together to almost make a perfect storm in the sense that the pandemic was a challenge or a crisis on top of another crisis. So we had a, a brand new government in office. Mm. That had no experience in governance. So that in itself carries this challenge of having to go through a learning curve, learn what government is about, and then begin delivering. So they were just in the middle of that when this thing struck. On top of that, we were going through a financial crisis as well. I mean, the year leading up to the pandemic, we had already lost about 50% of the rupee value in about an 18-month period leading up to the pandemic. So all of these things have really handicapped the government and its ability to respond uh, without external assistance. So unfortunately, it's not in a, in a great position to support industry. Industry is looking to its own solution. But there are uh, islands within government that have responded well. And the central bank, for example, has come out with really creative packages to make sure that companies have help in not laying off workforce. Companies that are still looking to expand in this pandemic and find new opportunities of growth have the resources to do so. But it's really, uh, you know, these small, great efforts, but the headwinds are really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think in case of Bangladesh, government has already like, you know, provided few stimulus packages for different industries and all. So from our side, it's not that, you know, we are private, like, you know, if I talk about my company, it's not that I'm just waiting for government's uh, money to come and then I'm going to survive. So I think like we ourselves, we are trying to figure it out that how we actually come out of this difficult time. Of course, like, you know, even for my company also, I work with about 17, 18 financial institutions. So where we are talking to do our restructure of our business, but it was also really nice of government that they are going to cover for 30% of our current borrowing government is going to pay 50% of the interest for a year. So government is doing all these things. But as I said that, you know, from private sector, we are talking to our financial institutions and both of us, because these financial institutions, they also need to survive, but we also need time. But one thing in Bangladesh we have done that, you know, our country was almost for a two and a half months, the entire country was shut, but we have paid our employees. We have paid our workers even ETH bonuses. So that actually commitment, more or less Bangladeshi entrepreneurs, more or less everyone kept. And now we are trying to work it out a solution with the financial institutions. It's not that we are just waiting that government will give us because of course expectation, we should also have some limitations. What probably in US is possible, not possible in Bangladesh today, maybe 50 years down the line, that is going to happen, but not today. So there's a tone of uh, realism there. There's a question that has to do with the uh, technology sector in India, or more generally. And the question is that, you know, there are a lot of these very high-valued startups that are being funded in different pockets in India, and many of them are in trouble now. 
And so there's exposed head scratching about the valuations that they were paid and so on. And so the question really is, what does that suggest about the nature of the way in which risk capital is allocated? And on the other hand, uh, pre-existing enterprises that had been in existence for a long time are much more naturally able to weather the storm in the short run. So it's an observation more than a question, other than just saying that maybe we are funding things incorrectly in some ways in, in India. I'm not so sure that I would draw that conclusion personally from that one observation, but I would say that there's a very fundamental weakness with the Indian, even though, though science in India is very highly developed in some pockets, in some limited pockets. The big weakness that I see in uh, my own country is that the ability to take scientific insight to action, to implement science, is very localized. It's in a very few sectors. So when you think about med tech, medical devices, uh, for instance, or you think about risk capital for biotechnology, or you think about ag tech, agricultural technology, these are areas where uh, conventional venture capital and even private equity risk capital is not going to go in on its own. It really needs some degree of uh, underwriting because of generalized institutional weaknesses, ensuring that the payback periods on the monies allocated to this being much longer in developing countries. And the, the state and society has not been able in India so far to build that infrastructure adequately. It's a project in which I've been very involved for the last five, seven years. I chaired the committee for the prime minister that uh, wrote the report that eventually got enshrined as our innovation policy in the country. Uh, but you know, these are slow moving things. Uh, particularly for large, complex countries. And my view is that it's a 10, 15-year journey that we're very on. So from my perspective, I would say the weakness in India that is becoming apparent in any form of crisis, right, is that the allocation of money from science to practice is very localized. Uh, and also, of course, localized geographically, which would not surprise you. That's true in every single country in the world, but localized sectorally is what I was trying to say. Because I'm a big believer that ultimately, unless science is front and center, you're effectively competing in this world with your hands tied behind your back. And so we have to bring science to the forefront. Uh, and I, I, I take every opportunity I can to shout from the rooftop that <laughs> this is something that's needed in every country. And it's, it's inappropriate to equate poverty with no interest in science or no application of science, or even equate poverty inadvertently as we do, including at Harvard, with inability to generate science. None of those equations are correct, in my view, conceptually. You know, you are absolutely right. And I just wanted to give you an example from Bangladesh perspective mm -hmm. that actually our ICT division in Bangladesh, they're super active. You know, in last two months, so many products they have launched to support e-commerce product mm -hmm. because I, I'm not a uh, too techie person, so I won't be able to explain that properly. But I think at least like whatever they're supposed to do in last three years, they have done it in last two months. And of course, like, you know, when... We're talking about all these investments in startups. Of course, no one actually predicted this pandemic. So some of them really took off and some of them are suffering. So I think it's a matter of time. Yeah, I think you know the argument you're making for science and education, in this situation, finally, you may have an audience here also because yeah. what it's forced the government to do is look at how unsustainable we've been as a, as a country. And look at areas like science and technology, for example, the need for investing in those. So some of the innovation that came immediately from young students, young entrepreneurs, was, for example, in the area of ventilators. So suddenly, 
with a shortage space with a shortage of ventilators. We had at least 17 startups in the ventilator space that have created these really amazing ventilators in the space of one and a half, two months. And it's first the government that traditionally have ignored these things happening right under its nose. It's now looking at them very seriously. And at least, you know, we've never had a history of enabling governments in our region. But at least it's now looking to not discourage those. And uh, hopefully going forward, we'll also begin to invest and look at these areas, education, health. It's exposed so many weaknesses in our system in such a stark way that I hope the learning that takes place as a result does not get unlearned right after. Is your commitment to the arts continued, even if COVID continues? And uh, what struggles will either the Dhaka effort or the Lahore effort face? Assuming, uh, worst case, that this crisis stays with us, and how are you thinking about it as ultimately the entrepreneurs behind two important destinations in the art scene in South Asia and, and uh, in the world, in Dhaka's case, and soon for Lahore's case? So uh, for us, actually, mainly Nadia, she runs the foundation and we are actually staying positive. And even actually day before yesterday, we launched a new program called Art Around the Table. Mm -hmm. So one thing like, you know, since uh, we are all sort of sitting at homes, so our artists are sitting at home. So every Thursday, actually, we have a Zoom call with a group of artists. And so that is how, like, you know, we have been staying connected. And separately, we have launched this program called Art Around the Table. So what we have done we have invited a group of like you know artists curators museum directors scholars around the world they're actually running different educational program for our emerging artists and basically what we are doing instead of giving them any fees that fees actually we are donating to an NGO called Jago Foundation in Bangladesh. So Jago Foundation mainly runs schools in the slum areas, also in Rohingya camps. And during this difficult time, Jago Foundation actually supporting all the kids and their families around Bangladesh. So the way we have designed this program that, you know, these from our friends from all around the world, through them, our artists are learning so many things and their contribution is going to this foundation in Bangladesh. So that is how we have designed this program and we are grateful to our friends who has all come forward. And of course, the Dhaka Art Summit, we hope that the vaccine will be invented. And again, we are going to have half a million people in 2022. I'll also go and visit Lahore, Vienna. So that is the plan and we are staying positive. Yeah, so, you know, if, if there's one industry that is catered to respond to something like this, it's, it's the arts, right? Because art is in the imagination, what you imagine it to be. And this pandemic actually reminds me of the very first project that the Lahore Biennale Foundation did when we started off, which was a collaboration with the Venice Biennale. It was called My East is, it was a project called My East is Your West. And it brought two artists, one from India, one from Pakistan, uh, Rashid Rana and Shilpa Gupta, together in a palazzo in Venice. Each had, you know, half the room. And uh, Rashid's part of the show was a series of visual experiences. And one of which was this room that you enter in Venice. And when you enter on your left, there's a fireplace for the painting of the Madonna. And when you turn to the right, there's this giant mirror. And he built an exact replica of the room in the middle of Liberty Market in Lahore and just plonked it at, at this green fields, you know, space in the middle of a parking lot. And when you entered that container in Lahore, you had a painting of the Madonna to your left, the fireplace underneath it. And to your right was again, this mirror, which was actually a high speed data connected screen where suddenly you would have a completely unexpected interaction with an audience in Venice. So, uh, you know, you'd have these series of uh, interactions between people that were purely virtual, but were so amazingly profound. So I'll just give you an example. You know, there was this on the Venice side, you were there for the opening. 
And there are a lot of these really attractive Italian people on the Italian side looking at Lahore. And you see this little boy with a rag on his shoulder who was cleaning cars outside, walks in, looks at these girls and starts singing this song in Punjabi. <laughs> song and he sang so beautifully that even though they didn't understand a word of what he was saying when he was done they were all in tears the whole room was in tears and that's really the power of art you know it it crosses so many boundaries. it allows you to have so many impossible conversations that if anything is suited to respond to this kind of pandemic art is probably front and center having said that i've just stepped down from the chairmanship of the biennale nothing to do with COVID. it's just a way to kind of institutionalize Hopefully this mm-hmm. effort, of course, continue to support it and Biennales will take place whether virtually or physically. I'm sure the next Dhaka Art Summit will be, it's every edition. I, I went to not this last edition, but the one before, it was just unbelievably amazing. And it, it's become such a center of the arts for the entire region, not just for Bangladesh. These are ways to bring us together that have existed before and I think will, are much more needed even going forward. That's, that's, you know, just so heartening to hear both the, you know, in the small specific way, the art around the table is a fabulous, simple innovation that anybody can institutionalize immediately once you hear it. And the, and the evocative example of the little boy singing Bulesha in the Lahore parking lot to a Venetian audience is spectacular, in fact. Let me push both of you for a second on the arts because it's, you know, it's become a little bit closer to my heart as a result of my being part of the Institute and uh, having the privilege of engaging with so many of you. You know, we are engaged at the Mittal Institute, particularly my colleague Mina, in uh, trying to trigger what I would call creativity in the arts establishment uh, in India. Uh, And by arts establishment, I mean in a very encompassing sense. You know, artists by definition are creators and uh, entrepreneurs in, in a sense. Each artist is his or her own entrepreneur. So I would, you know, obviously you see them, the high ground on demonstrated creativity. But I'm talking about the rest of the infrastructure, right? the museums, and with you know the exception of the two of you and like-minded colleagues who are involved in Biennales and so on. There's a lot of rigidity, and even among private collectors. So you know, India has seen a resurgence of wealth in the last 20 years. So there's any number of individuals who have private collections and in a sense, they all know each other. So when you go to any of these events, you would know all of them, and I know most of them. But it just seems to me that it's becoming more like a private cabal. And I wonder if you want to disabuse me of that dismal prospect. And I would be thrilled if you did. Or agree with me and think about what could, as civic-minded people, what could we do to make sure that you know, the arts are for everybody, beyond what you, the considerable things that both of you already are doing. I'm particularly distressed about the museums, actually, and what I see as incredible rigidity and ostrich-like heads in the sand, so to speak, in many instances, not all. Yeah, in case of India, actually, I think our dear friend Kiran Nadir, she's also yeah. building a new massive actually, museum. And there are also other collectors who are like slowly gradually, because I think for us, South Asian, it, it took us some time to sort of, because, you know, the way actually Western world operates versus us it's a bit different so i think now in last two three years i am seeing a lot of people who are interested they are forming foundations they want to support art they want to start their own institutions so i think it is changing it's a matter of time it is changing and you know i also co-chaired the south asia committee for tate museum so tate was Mm -hmm. the first uh, museum to look at south asia so seriously all this sort of correspondence and communication and connection also started quite recently. 
And even if you look at our Biennials that, you know, Kochi Biennial also started in 2012. Mm. Lahore started four years back in 2016. Dhaka started in also uh, 2012. Uh, so all these things are actually happening only in last 10 years. Mm. So I think slowly, gradually it is changing. And of course, like, you know, the Metal Institute, your Art Council, people like you are also changing this, bringing people together. So I think, you know, it is, it is changing. That's what I believe. I think we've long had this problem in our part of the world that art has been seen as a luxury. And so the only access you traditionally had to art in Pakistan at least was either in private homes where you saw beautiful works of art or in some galleries or one art museum that nobody bothered to visit. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think attempts like Dhaka and, and Kochi in India and, and Lahore have been important because they've not just democratized art, they've kind of used it as something beyond just an exercise in aesthetics. It's, it's, it's almost a, you know, a vehicle for social impact. So, I mean, I was amazed to see the number of school children that came to the Dhaka Art Summit in, in hordes, you know. And similarly in Lahore, and we were trying to hold the first edition, the government was initially very negative. They, you know, they said, Who, nobody will bother and come look at the Biennale. Why are you asking us even for support? But, you know, we had a quarter of a million visitors in a fortnight. So it's challenged that notion of art as something exclusive. And you're right. I mean, I think museums are at risk of being left behind. We've tried to work with the museums in Lahore, for example, to try and help revitalize them because there were places that were in neglect anyway. But uh, in places like the U.S. where you have the abundance of museums, I think they do need to, there needs to be a lot more innovation in museums, I agree. Well, I think we're at a really interesting moment. You know, I'm a trustee of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and the museums have been devastated by COVID because the the museums here are not all supported by the state at all. They're all private institutions supported by local philanthropists primarily. So there's a lot of soul searching going on, on about what the museum of the future will look like. And again, it's an inflection point, you know, where technology is going to play a much bigger role than it has in the past per force both on the supply side, so to speak, because it's possible to do things that you couldn't do before and on the demand side was the nature of the financial constraints that are imposed on it. So I think of it as sort of a creativity under constraint, right, in some ways. This seems like a good moment uh, on the high note of arts to think about closing down the, the panel. But I'm just going to give each of you the last word. Osman, why don't you go first and then Rajiv can uh, close things out. Any last thoughts, reflections, anything of that sort? Well, just thank you for this opportunity. You know, I mean, it's, it's so nice for us to get together and have this discussion. And I, I just think this is a real opportunity to have many such discussions in, in many areas. And as uh, academic institutions, as uh, individuals that are engaged or really fond of ideas, promoting ideas, discussing ideas, this is, in a sense, a, an opportunity that should not be let go of. Thank you, Usman. Rajiv? Thank you, Tarun. Thank you uh, for having us and thank you for thinking about Bangladesh. And as I said that, you know, we are staying positive and uh, hopefully like all these are going to end soon or we are going to adapt soon, but we will come out of it whichever way, inshallah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And great meeting you, Osman, too. Wonderful to have you both. As Chelsea, my colleague, started us off, you know, the function of the Mittal Institute is to bring together people for an exchange of ideas and to stimulate research and creativity and teaching in all manner of issues related to South Asia, either by dissemination or by learning in two ways. 
So thank you again, and thank you to the audience. There are a whole host of questions here. Usually our team collates them and does something with them. So expect to see something on the website at some point. And it's been my privilege to have my two friends, Osman and Rajiv, with me. Thank you again, and have a lovely rest of the day. Take care.